Before we hear God's word proclaimed, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Let us pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter, reading verses 1 through 16. This selection is the familiar parable of the sower, and it's Jesus' way of teaching the people how to understand and interpret his messages. So listen now for the word of the Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Then the disciples came and asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that, seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, you will indeed listen, but never understand, and you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and for your ears, for they hear. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament lesson on this Lord's Day comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 3 through 9. These are the words of the Lord through the prophet. Incline your ear and come to me, 
Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this first installment of the Questions to God sermon series, and we appreciate all the responses that we received from you as we solicited them from members of the congregation, We face this morning the question of why the kingdom of God can be so hard to grasp and to comprehend. Why, for example, does Christ prefer to teach in parables that seem more like riddles? Why is God's teaching left open to so much debate and interpretation? Wouldn't it just be easier if God spoke clearly so that we could always understand the word and always know the right thing to do? Like it or not, confusion about what God is really saying to us and what God really wants from us has always been part of the life of the church. Much of the time, even the original 12 apostles, the ones who actually walked and ate and lived and studied with Jesus just didn't get it. The Gospels so often say that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying to them that one of my seminary professors would sometimes refer to them as the disciples. At times it seems that Jesus was frustrated with his followers because he did not think that they were trying hard enough. For example, in the case of the parable of the sower, which we just heard a few moments ago, Jesus says, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. This, I suspect, remains a pretty big part of our issue today, Our desire to know God is real. Our longing to hear and comprehend what God is saying to us is authentic and it comes from a good place. We want to understand divine truth. We just don't want to have to work too hard to get it. Now, on the other hand, there are some things about God that we will never understand, at least not on this side of heaven. 
This reality is one of the key topics of biblical wisdom literature, including books like Job and Ecclesiastes. For example, as Job complains about his misfortune to the Lord, a voice from heaven thunders back out of a mighty whirlwind saying essentially, who do you think you are, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? From there and for the next four chapters, God goes on to list just a small number out of the vast universe of things that God knew and understood, but that Job would never know and never understand. That speech from the whirlwind was designed to put Job squarely in his place, that place where a mortal really has no business questioning God or demanding to know and understand God's grand mysteries. Some mysteries are just above our pay grade. According to legend, when Douglas MacArthur was a young cadet at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He was working through his civil engineering homework one night, and the text for that evening was incredibly dense and complex. It discussed the relationship between time and space that Einstein would later formulate into his theory of relativity. And knowing that his professor, Gustav J. Feiberger, was fond of calling students to recite for the class, and also knowing full well that he had no clue what the scientists in his reading were talking about, MacArthur went to a strategy that he would use often across the years. He basically committed the entire reading to memory. And sure enough, the next day he was called on by the professor and he proceeded to rattle off pretty much verbatim a key section of the text that they had read. And Colonel Feiberger looked at him for a moment and then asked, Cadet, do you understand this theory? And without hesitation, MacArthur answered, No, sir, I do not. And the room was eerily silent, and MacArthur braced for the response, and finally it came. Neither do I, Mr. MacArthur. Class is dismissed. MacArthur went on to graduate from West Point at the top of his class. It's a good story, and it reminds us that understanding is sometimes elusive, but we still have not addressed that initial question that was posed, that question to God. Yes, God's truth remains elusive. Yes, a parable of Christ can be confounding, much like to use Winston Churchill's famous turn of phrase, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But why is that? Why does God choose to leave us in confusion about certain truths? Why doesn't God just make things plain and easier to understand? So what I offer to you now are certainly not definitive answers because I am but a fellow struggler with you in this plight. However, I will pose some thoughts that may help us move forward together and perhaps a bit closer to some understanding. I think the most likely explanation for our struggle to understand is simply that God's field of vision is just so much bigger than ours. 
That's clearly the lesson that came to Job out of the whirlwind. How could we as mere mortals ever really expect to understand how God leads us, how God cares for us? How could we plumb the depths of God? So the key for us is to see this reality as a blessing, not as a curse. In much the same way as the psalmist of Psalm 139 said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Much of God's knowledge will always be above our pay grade. God's vision is too high and too wonderful to us to reach, but this is good news, for it ultimately works to our advantage. Another reason that God does not just lay it all out for us in black and white may be that God doesn't want us to be lazy. The earliest Hebrew writing from Genesis tried to make sense of why life was difficult. Life in the Garden of Eden was carefree, but remember that humanity was not content with that. We wanted to know more, and Adam and Eve simply could not resist the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And then outside of the garden, It is clear that life is a struggle, and God ordained it to be so, according to Genesis. We would struggle to bring forth food from the ground. Women would struggle in childbirth. Parents would struggle to raise children. Cain and Abel would struggle with jealousy and strife and violence. From the very beginning, human life has required us to work, and the life of faith is no different. Now, if that explanation begs a follow-up question, why does life have to be a struggle, then another response could be that life might just be a whole lot more interesting that way. If a game can always be won in just one move, it is not much of a game. If the teacher gives us answers to every algebra test at the beginning of the year, we will never learn algebra. The Apostle Paul recognized that the struggles of life ultimately point us to God. So Paul became actually grateful for his struggles and for his confusion, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. One of the things God wants us to learn through these struggles is that our obsession with control is unhealthy, unfaithful, and ultimately counterproductive. I am convinced that our desire to understand things completely is somehow an extension of our desire to control things completely. And I am also convinced that one of our primary goals and purposes in this life is to learn to trust. To learn to trust God, to learn to trust other people. So we can think of confusion 
or a lack of understanding as one of those struggles that lead to endurance and then to character and then to hope in Christ. The truth is that there are things in this life that are going to confound us. There are things that will never make sense to us. And we should all be seeking the kind of spiritual maturity that allows us, when we come to one of those dead ends, to simply pause and give it to God. To be willing to say, God, I just cannot figure this out, so I am going to trust you to give me what I need when I need it. I will trust you to guide my steps, even though I cannot now see the way ahead. Albert Einstein gives us a great example of how we might engage this struggle for knowledge in ways that still draw us closer to God. Einstein, who obviously could understand that reading that gave Douglas MacArthur and his classmates so much trouble, never stopped trying to understand the cosmos. And his view of the cosmos clearly included a conviction of the existence of the God who created it all. Einstein had what some have called a night sky theology, a sense of the awesomeness of the universe that was essentially the same as that wonder felt by the psalmist who looked up at the night sky and uttered the prayer, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are even mindful of them, mortals that you actually care for them? For Einstein, the greatest mystery in the cosmos is the fact that the cosmos is something even though it could have been nothing. In the beginning, something started everything, and Einstein referred to that beginning as we do with the name God. Einstein was driven by a desire to understand the order that God had created. His life was a relentless pursuit of truth, a persistent probing of cosmic mysteries through scientific inquiry. He never stopped seeking that elusive theory of everything, that one model that could somehow explain all of the physical workings of the universe. He was never able to put it all together. But that never seemed to frustrate him. It just drove him harder. And although God seemed to have dropped a veil over the truths that he was pursuing, he kept plugging away, trying to peek beneath that veil to get a little glimpse into eternity. And we may not be scientists, and we certainly may not have Einstein's abilities But I do think that God is indeed pleased with all of us when we are willing to work to understand the world God has created, including the mysteries presented by Scripture. And from time to time, even normal people like you and like me are given glimpses into the divine realm. In fact, Scripture uses this same metaphor, a lifting of the veil, to describe these moments of revelation. 
That term most likely derives from the story of Exodus 34. The Israelites noticed that whenever Moses would come down from Mount Sinai after speaking with God and being taught by the Lord, the skin of Moses' face would glow and shine. And the phenomenon terrified the people, and they started refusing to come near him because they were frightened, which meant that Moses could not share that wisdom and knowledge that he had been given by God with those people. So God placed a veil over Moses' face to shield the frightening glow, and he would take that veil off when he was speaking directly to God, but Moses always put it back on before he taught and preached to the Israelites. So through the ages, those moments when God gives us those brief, intermittent clues or revelations, those clues and revelations have been described as, as times when God lifts the veil and shows us new truths. The possibility of these moments can give us great hope as we struggle our way to learn what we must learn and live through what we must live through in order to find our way back to God. Final thought I want to offer this morning is a lesson we learn particularly from the Gospel of Mark. In this version of the story, the disciples were at their worst. Again and again, they failed to understand, and Scripture tells us so. Even so, the veil was lifted for them in some pretty amazing ways. They saw miracles performed. They heard as demons who had been exercised from people proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God, that they knew who he was. Peter is given the insight to say to Jesus, you are the Messiah, And in all of these cases, Jesus warns the disciples not to tell anyone. It was not because what they were saying and hearing was not true. It was that Jesus knew that the disciples would not really understand what they had seen and heard until the end. It would not be until Jesus died on the cross and then rose again that all of the pieces would begin to come together and make sense. It would only be through hindsight that truth could actually be understood rightly. And I think that is often true for us as well. One of the reasons that God does not give us instant understanding may be that we have not yet seen all that we need to see before we can understand. Our scope of vision may need to be widened and broadened by experience before we can grasp the meaning of some reality in our life. And that means in the short term, we may be confused by what happens to us. We may not see any light in a tragedy We may not know how to interpret Scripture for a particular circumstance, but we do have the hope that in time we will understand. We do have the hope that when the time is right, the veil will be lifted for us and we will be able to look back and see God's purpose at work, how God was working for good all along.
through the ages. That hope is what students of the Bible have seen in these verses of Isaiah. When the Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, it is not a condemnation of human failure. It is rather a promise of divine help. When the Lord says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, it's not a warning of punishment, but rather an assurance that redemption will come. It means that even when we are confused, even when we don't see any way out, even when we cannot comprehend how a situation can end in anything other than disaster, God's wisdom, power, and grace are so vast, so sublime, so utterly beyond us that we know God can find a way to bring us home and bring us home safely. So, in the meantime, may we do our best to understand what we can understand. May we long to know what can be known. May we strive to learn what can be learned. And may we give the rest to God in trust, in faith, and in the hope that when the time is right, when we are ready, a little corner of the veil will be lifted for us, just enough to peek into eternity, and see what God needs us to see. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.